The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined once again by Nikola Mikovic, who is a freelance journalist in Serbia, covering Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, and political developments in the Balkans. He writes for Juan Cole's informed comments, among numerous other publications. We'll be talking Turkey, Turkey, Russia, US, NATO, that is, as well as what China is doing in the Balkans and Donbass, Belarus, and Armenia. How are things in Serbia, Nikola? So far, so good, I would say. Hi, and thank you for having me on your show again. Yeah, it's great to have you back. I I love your writing. Uh, I need to get you on more often. I think it's been, I think we last spoke uh, last summer, almost a year ago. So I'll be sure to have you on more often. Perhaps we could start alphabetically with uh, Armenia, or maybe just because they had their elections a few days ago. Prime Minister Pashinyan is back. He won by uh, a majority. And you think now Armenia will begin to normalize relations with Azerbaijan and Turkey. So, you know, give us your thoughts. I think so. I, th- I think Yerevan does not have much choice because it's a Yerevan is actually Armenia is a defeated country. It lost the war against Azerbaijan last year. It was a war um, over Nagorno-Karabakh that, that was controlled by the ethnic Armenians for two decades or so. Um, and now it will have to make unilateral concessions to Azerbaijan and also to Turkey, that is now um, the official ally of Azerbaijan. Um, unfortunately, Armenia cannot count on Russia's help. Um, Russia proved to be a completely unreliable ally during the war because it refused to provide assistance to its nominal ally, um, member of the Security Collective Treaty Organization. Um, Russia did not want to interfere, um, nor to provide any weapons to Armenia. Unlike Turkey, that supplied Azerbaijan with uh, modern, sophisticated weapons, primarily uh, drones by Raktar that proved to be very efficient. Um, not so long ago, uh, the Azeri troops uh, reportedly entered uh, the Armenian territory and captured some villages or a small uh, portion of Armenian territory. And Armenia um, asked Russia and the Security Collective Treaty Organization for help, but as we see, Russia did not intervene again. Um, So Armenia cannot count on Russia and does not have any other allies. And basically, Yerevan is on its own in this game and will have to do what it's told to. And um, we already know that it will have to allow Azerbaijan to complete construction of a corridor that will basically link um, Azerbaijan with, with its uh, exclave of uh, Nakhchivan bordering uh, Turkey and Armenia. Um, and Armenia will lose sovereignty over its southern part um, close to the border with Iran because that, that portion of the land will be controlled by Russia's security forces, uh, FSB. Um, so Armenia lost not only Nagorno Karabakh, but also a certain portion of Armenia. So in, in the greater geopolitical game, who do you see winning? Uh, for example, I, you know, I, I was living in Kazakhstan. I subscribe to a lot of these, you know, think tank policy uh, re- reports that, that I get in the email. And I've been noticing, for example, in Kazakhstan, you see the EU uh, and the IMF and the West talking about trying to make uh, inroads into Central Asia, into Kazakhstan. And as you're saying now, for example, in this region with uh, Armenia, that Russia didn't do much. And so does this mean now that Washington and, and Brussels are gaining 
more of a foothold in this area or, 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 or via Turkey or, you know, what's the macro picture? Well, for now, Russia will remain the major foreign actor um, in the Caucasus, but Turkey is, um, it, it basically started building its, its own positions in the region uh, and um, through, our, through Azerbaijan, it um, managed to improve its strategic position in this region. Um, but at this point, Russia is still the major player uh, in the Caucasus, although in the long term, uh, I expect confrontations between Turkey and um, Russia, not, not only over Caucasus, but also over other regions. Uh, so the two countries are partners in a way, um, although historically they were always rivals. Um, and um, it is no secret that Russia had ambitions to establish control over Bosphorus and Dardanelles in order to have the access to the Mediterranean. Uh, and that strategically important part of the world is now controlled by NATO member Turkey. Uh, the very fact that Ankara never shut down the Straits of Bosphorus and Dardanelles for the Russian Navy ships on their way to Syria uh, is a clear indication that Russia's involvement in the Syrian civil war is part of wider geopolitical deals, not just between Moscow and Ankara, but also between uh, the United States and Russia. Um, and um, Russia and Turkey, they are, they are partners, but at the same time, they are um, enemies. So it's like frenemies. Uh, and incidents occur from time to time in their so-called partnership. So we remember how that partnership started. Um, in 2015, when Turkey downed the Russian jet over Syria, uh, and then Moscow responded by imposing the tomato ban uh, on, on Turkey, the import of Turkish tomatoes. Uh, I mean, it did have an impact on Turkish economy, but I'm just trying to imagine how would the United States react if um, a Russian ally, uh, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Belarus, you name it, uh, if they would shoot uh, uh, the American plane uh, or a jet. Um, I'm pretty sure the U.S. reaction would be much, much more serious than the Russian one. It certainly wouldn't be as uh, limited and calculated as the Russian reaction. But OK, so um, and, and even after that incident, uh, another one occurred. So uh, as we remember, the Russian ambassador to Turkey was assassinated. Um, but all that did not affect Russo-Turkish business and energy ties. Um, Russia also have, has significant energy ties with Azerbaijan. That is one of the reasons why it did not provide assistance to its ally Armenia, because energy business with Azerbaijan obviously prevailed over its alliance with Armenia. Um, and now it's the same story with Turkey. So uh, Russia is involved in the construction of um, nuclear power plant in Turkey, and it started building it in 2018, I think, although they signed a contract much earlier. Um, and uh, Russia also completed the construction of uh, Nord's, no, I'm sorry, Turk Stream pipeline, so it's providing uh, natural gas to, to Turkey, and um, they developed their economic cooperation uh, 
so in a way, they are economic partners. Um, but at the same time, they're fighting proxy wars um, in Syria, um, also in Libya, and also that one in Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, so it's, it's interesting in Syria, for instance, they, um, they have their own zones of occupation in Syria. So Russia, through President Bashar Assad, uh, controls roughly 60 to 65% of Syria's territory, uh, while Turkey controls some, I would say, 10% or so of northern province, province of Idlib, not even the whole province, maybe a uh, significant portion anyway. Uh, and we have a third actor involved in this conflict, and that's the United States. Um, that controls all the key um, oil fields in Syria and northwest of the country. Um, and all the three powers are involved in this conflict and they cooperate, of course. Um, and I think it's another divide and rule game in the region. And it's basically the same situation in, in the Caucasus, in Armenia, in Nagorno-Karabakh. I'm wondering if, you know, as you described this frenemy situation, if it's all like a, a case of uh, opportunism and, and re real politic. Um, for, you know, in your article, you talk about how they keep annoying each other. You gave some examples, you know, Turkey buying, angering Washington by purchasing Ru Russian S-400 anti-aircraft missile systems, Washington um, uh, annoying Ankara by supporting the Kurds. Uh, in Syria and Iraq. And I think just a few days ago, Erdogan again was demanding Turkey become an EU member state. But I think what we, we what uh, can be assured, which you were saying in your article, that there will be new conflicts, wars, and territorial claims, that they, they are inevitable. I don't see that going away, right? Yeah, I think it's a matter of time. For instance, in Libya, we can expect um, another round of confrontation over the energy-rich town of Sirte, uh, that is presently controlled by the Russia-backed um, Khalifa Haftar and his Libyan National Army, um, while Turkey, on the other hand, controls, um, actually supports the government of national accord. Um, but Russia and Turkey are not the only players in that country. There are other actors involved as well, Saudi Arabia and uh, all of the, to a certain degree. So there's Egypt is playing a much more important role in this conflict, and also the United Arab Emirates, um, France, Italy, even Greece. So um, it's also that conflict is also about oil and uh, gas and oil reserves. Um, Turkey, at the end of 2019, I think, signed a contract with Libya. Uh, it's a maritime deal, so in an attempt to establish control over. Um, gas fields, oh, maybe this offshore. Um, that's basically Turkey's attempt to reduce its energy dependence on Russia. Uh, so the conflict is Libya is, I think it will start, if not this year, then uh, next year for sure. Um, it's not that it will start, it will just continue because it's currently on a hold like many other conflicts. Um, even the conflict in the Donbass, Turkey is not in involved directly there, although it is um, supporting and um, arming Ukraine. Um, but we can talk about that later. Um, the United States is not directly involved in Libya civil war, but it certainly has the last say in 
many other contexts as well, since it's the only global superpower. Um, Russia would certainly like to be a superpower, but it's not because it's not responding the appropriate way. It's suffering humiliations on a, on a daily basis. And at the same time, it's trying to create um, a, an image of a power, superpower that is um, powerful enough to oppose the United States and its allies, but that's not the case. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with you. Since we're in MENA, Middle East, North Africa, let's move uh, up a bit. You wrote an interesting article about how China is slowly moving into the Balkans, into Serbia, where you are, and Montenegro, for example. Uh, they've also been building a bridge, I, I remember, uh, in Croatia and, and, and Bosnia. But ultimately, you say that the, the West, Washington and Brussels will remain dominant um, in, in the Balkans in terms of you know investment and, and uh, stature, uh, although it's fascinating how you point out that Beijing and Washington together are making deals uh, in the Balkans. So, you know, what's what's that all about? Is, is this s s scaremongering hype of, you know, China taking over Europe? I mean, is, is that essentially hype or, you know, what, how do you see things? So the Western mainstream media, then they tend to exaggerate China's influence in this part of the world. Um, I strongly believe that China's influence in the Balkans is um, delegated. So um, it's virtually impossible for China, Russia, or any other country to, to do business in the Balkans or anywhere without the, the approval by the United States or the European Union in this case. Um, so China's influence in the Balkans is not nearly as strong as the mainstream media uh, tend to portray it. Um, it. It is involved in certain projects, infrastructure projects, um, primarily in my own country, Serbia. Um, but um, this whole region, the so-called Western Balkans, although I think that term does not make much sense because um, all the countries uh, in the so-called Western Balkans that are actually located in Southern and uh, some parts of the Balkan Peninsula, not in the West. So maybe Slovenia and Croatia could be Western Balkan nations and not, certainly not Macedonia or Albania. But uh, anyway, um, China uh, is doing business here, but it got the green light from Washington to do so. That's my um, major thesis. Uh, I think that uh, it's, um, they certainly made some deals. We don't know what those deals are about, but um, for instance, China recently purchased some uh, major um, companies here in Serbia, not from the state of Serbia, but from the United States, because they previously owned those companies uh, in a couple of towns in Serbia. Um, and we have a similar situation in Iraq. Uh, where Russia is expanding its business, its energy ties, and Iraq, as we know, is uh, in the U.S. sphere of influence. So again, it's it's impossible to do business there unless you get the approval from the United States. So that's the same situation here in the Balkans. Uh, and um, there's another example. So just a few years ago, um, Serbia established direct flights from Belgrade to Tehran, to Iran, uh, and it was forced to cancel them because 
uh, the EU demanded so allegedly due to the increasing numbers of migrants coming to the EU from Iran. Um, and of course, flights, flights have been suspended. Um, but it's interesting that the EU never demanded from Serbia to um, cancel or suspend visa-free regime with that it has with China. So it's just um, another um, clear sign that uh, China's business in the Balkans um, is supported by the EU and the United States for whatever reason. We don't know what's the real reason, but that's the fact that that's, that's what's going on on the ground. I mean, if you think that uh, countries like Serbia or Bosnia, Herzegovina, Iraq, uh, that they're sovereign, free, and they have the right to cooperate with whoever they want to, then, then you must believe in Santa Claus as well, because the world, world doesn't operate that way. So. All right. Uh, let's move uh, up a bit northwest from the Balkans uh, out to Geneva, Switzerland, one of my former homes, lovely place, very expensive. Um, we had the recent Biden-Putin uh, summit uh, that was held there. It came and went. I feel it was merely a brief respite in what will be more of the same over the long run. You know, a continued pressure by Washington against Moscow, more sanctions and so on. Uh, you agree, you wrote in your article, quote, Washington will unlikely treat Moscow as an equal partner, uh, end quote. You know, what are your thoughts in the aftermath of Biden-Putin summit? Well, the U.S. will certainly keep imposing sanctions on Russia as part of a new Cold War. Um, and... Um, Russia is being treated not not even as a junior partner, but as a defeated country because it's a legal successor of the Soviet Union. And this, as we know, Soviet Union lost the Cold War. So Russia is uh, de facto a defeated country. And it often has to make uh, some pain, painful concessions to the United States and to the Western powers in general. Um, so I think in the future, we will see pretty much the same situation. Nothing significant will change. although. Um, Ukrainian President Zelensky said that uh, we could expect new uh, division, uh, new spheres of influence in Europe. We'll see. I don't think it will be that easy because uh, they already um, uh, created their own zones of influence in 1945. Um, and after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, they probably made some changes, although we were not aware of that. But we see, for instance, here in the Balkans, that, that the US and the EU, they have um, their own zones of influence here. And although China and Russia and Turkey to a certain extent, they are involved there as well. So they're allowed to, to be involved. And in Ukraine, for instance, um, the U.S. controls basically everything except Donbass and Crimea. So it was obviously part of the deal. So Russia got Crimea and a portion of the Donbass, the energy-rich uh, region of Ukraine, and the rest belongs to its dear Western partners. Um, and uh, they will probably make some deals regarding Ukraine and Belarus in the future. Um, but um, we will see in any case, Russia cannot accept to be treated as an equal partner. That's simply impossible. Um, even, even during the summit, Russia was not treated equally. Russian journalists were, were not allowed to uh, take part at the Biden conference while um, the American and other Western journalists, they were allowed to ask put in numerous questions. So that's just another sign that there is no equality in this game. 
And of course, if, if you lost the Cold War, you cannot expect to be treated um, equally. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you, but also I would think it's possible. It's possible to think that you know the reason Russian journalists were not allowed uh, at the American uh, press conferences uh, it could be a sign of weakness on the American side as well, because you know, for example, Biden cannot answer anything without his aides or, or, or a teleprompter uh, like Putin can, and so I think that that is a show of weakness on on that part. But you mentioned Donbass. My last guest, Tom Luongo, posited that. Uh, Ru- Russia had won the recent uh, the recent chapter of the Ukraine Donbass conflict or war. That the Ukrainian military, uh, he was saying that seventy percent of seventy percent of the Ukrainian military just didn't want to fight, and that you know this new Russian military technology, the hypersonics and all that stuff, is too hot to handle for U.S. NATO. Do you think you know you were just saying now that they might? Be, start making concessions. Uh, you know, maybe Donbass will eventually go to Russia. I don't know because I guess there are more Russian citizens there. Do you think the war there is over or it's going to heat up again at a more opportune moment? And, you know, what else is important for you when discussing Ukraine Donbass? I know Zelensky has been saying Ukraine wants to get into NATO and Biden apparently at the summit saying maybe not. You know, that's a Russian red line. So, Donbass, Ukraine, your thoughts there? And he, he said Ukraine cannot join NATO at this point, allegedly due to corruption, but other countries join NATO, even though they're, they still have not resolved that problem. Uh, so I think, yeah, they're trying not to cross Russia's red lines. Um, apparently, that is one of them. So they don't want Russia. I'm sorry, they, want, they, don't, they don't want Ukraine to join NATO. Um, although I don't understand what difference does it make if if NATO missiles are located in the city of Kharkov in, in eastern Ukraine or in Estonia, opposed to St. Petersburg, so it doesn't make much sense. But um, uh, that conflict is far from over. Uh, it's, it's also on hold. But let's not forget that uh, the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict has been on hold for over two decades. So it will be resolved eventually. We don't know when. Um, and... Um, I have to get back to Turkey. Uh, I mentioned that earlier. So uh, Turkey in, in April this year, when, when there were some reports of Russia allegedly preparing to invade Ukraine, um, although I don't understand why would it invade Ukraine, it already controls uh, the energy-rich Donbass and um, Crimea that has significant um, natural gas reserves and that's all the Kremlin cares about, energy. Um, so the interests of Gazprom and Rosneft are actually interests of Russia. Um, and in April, um, Zelensky met with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, and they discussed the current situation. And uh, they signed a joint declaration, and Turkey openly supported Ukrainian Crimean platform. Uh, so, as we know, Turkey does not uh, recognize uh, the annexation of Crimea. Uh, and um, Russia imposed um, some sort of flight embargo on Turkey because uh, it uh, suspended all the flights to Turkey. The official reason was uh, the rising number of COVID-19 cases in Turkey, but that was just uh, a cover-up story. In reality, it was a message to uh, Ankara, not to develop too close ties with um, Ukraine. Um, 
so in the future, I think Turkey will become involved in, in this conflict, in, especially in Crimea, because it, it sees Crimea as its uh, potential zone of influence and um, Crimean Tatars as its um, as uh, it, it, Turkey can could eventually use them as proxies against Russia, um, but that's in the long term. So, um, as I said, that the conflict in Donbass is far from over. But uh, the strategy that the Kremlin is using in um, in the Donbass is exactly the same that Turkey is using in Idlib. So um, we have significant number of people in the Donbass that, that already have Russian citizenship. I'm not sure if that's the case in Idlib, although there are some reports that uh, there are um, people there who, who already got Turkish passports. Um, and uh, Turkey is involved in, in construction of hospitals and uh, mosques, schools in Idlib. That's exactly what Russia is doing in the Donbass. Uh, Turkey is providing humanitarian aid uh, to the people of Idlib, and Russia is doing the same thing in Donbass. Um, Turkey is uh, training local police force, and that's um, Russia is not. It's also involved in, in uh, the war in the Donbas, although not directly, because it tends to to hide its activities there. Uh, apparently, not to to face with more anti-Russian sanctions, but it, it's not a secret that it's involved. I mean, we all know that uh, without Russia's help, uh, the Donbas republics wouldn't last for a week or so. Um, and um, you mentioned that. 70% of um, Ukrainian troops were not willing to fight. Uh, I think that was in 2014, but now they are willing to fight because a lot of things have changed in the meantime, uh, and now they're motivated to fight against uh, what they see as Russian aggression. Um, so I think a, a war is a, is a matter of time. That Well, war is... Always uh, a matter of time. Our default setting uh, in hu humanity and history is war. Peace is the uh, anomaly. Um, I guess let's round it out with Belarus. Uh, from my perspective, the IMF, the World Bank, and the West failed in their coup attempt last year to take down Lukashenko. Uh, I say that because Lukashenko revealed in June of 2020 that uh, he didn't want to lock down this country with face masks and, and quarantines and lo lockdowns. And he revealed that the IMF and the World Bank approached him, offering him, I don't know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars credit, I guess. But with the strings attached to lockdown and, and do all of that. And and Lukashenko said no. And then, you know, in July, you had attempts, I think, that to stage a coup against Belarus, which it failed. Uh, now we had this incident with agitator and color revolutionary Roman Protasevich, who had his Ryanair flight grounded in Belarus. Some have said it was a show and a setup by the EU in order to create a pretext for further sanctions and punishment by the West. Uh, some said that people within his own group uh, outed him. Um, and then others say that it was just you know Lukashenko grounding the plane. So after being apprehended by Belarus authorities, he's apparently confessed to being an agent of the West to de destabilize and overthrow Belarus. You know, well, what are your thoughts on Belarus uh, today? Well, even if the IMF and the World Bank, even if they had such a plan, it didn't work. Well, it looks like now they're using Russia to do the job for them because Lukashenko changed his attitude uh, towards COVID nineteen. And it imported um, Russian-made uh, Sputnik vaccines, 
Um, I think he recently said that mandatory vaccination it would be possible in Belarus. Uh, I would have to check, but I think he said some, something like that. Um, but anyway, um, I don't think that's the main reason why they wanted to orchestrate a regime change in Belarus. Um, not even sure if the West wanted to do that or, or Russia. It, what we see on the ground is that the West is literally pushing Belarus deeper into the Russian um, geopolitical orbit. Um, the more sanctions they impose on Belarus, the, the country becomes more dependent on Russia. Uh, if you if you take a look at uh, the Belavia flights, uh, now they're not flying to, to the West anymore, but j- just to the East, to the Russia and the former Soviet republics in, in the East, um, and to Turkey. Turkey is again... Um, major player here because it did not it, it apparently prevent NATO from imposing um, some sort of sanctions uh, against Belarus. Um, and um, Tur- Turkey acted as a, as a country that is uh, siding with Lukashenko. Um, I think he will stay in power. That's what I said when we spoke last time. So he will stay in power, although he will make, have to make concessions to Russia. And he's now completely dependent on on the Russian Federation. And um, the situation in Belarus is uh, not easy. So um, the opposition was backed by the West, and now it's exiled. They're all located in... Um, they're either um, in, in Belarusian jails or they're abroad in uh, Lithuania and Poland. Uh, um, no, no more protests in Belarus at this point. Um, but that situation is is definitely not easy, and um, the country does not have much choice now. It will have to make concessions to Russia, and uh, it will have to um, agree on the Kremlin on the Kremlin's terms and conditions, especially when it comes to oil and um, gas deals. Um, and as I said, that's what the Kremlin cares about. That it, it's very interested in the energy aspect. Um, and uh, it is involved in the construction of the nuclear power plant. Actually, it has been completed already. Um, but we see that the, the Baltic states uh, refuse to uh, buy electricity from Belarus. Um, and uh, the Belarusian products could eventually be banned in the West. And um, basically everything that the West is, is doing uh, will affect, uh, it will have negative consequences for the Belarus and it will have to, um, Lukashenko will have to do everything that Russia and the Kremlin tells him to do because that's the only way for him to stay in power. Um, the country is literally um, closed now. You cannot enter Belarus or you cannot even leave Belarus um, at this point, um, allegedly due to COVID 19. But remember, in the past, he, he refused to even to recognize. Um, the COVID and he ridiculed the virus and everything. And now he, he changed the story. Uh, that's probably results of pressure, not from the West, but uh, pressure directly from Russia. Yeah, you maybe just think of something when you referenced our last interview last year on Belarus. I think your forecast pretty much panned out. And so I've been noticing a lot of my guests, I'm, I'm having a good guests, um, Whose forecasts are, 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 are your predictions are coming true? Uh, I was reading yesterday, for example, that the Taliban are, are rapidly taking over uh, 
Afghanistan. And uh, I think a month or a few months ago, I interviewed the former UN weapons inspector, Scott Ritter, who on my podcast specifically predicted that. And now it's coming true. Uh, you talking about Belarus. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm liking my, my guests. I guess final question for you. Um, is there a strategic China-Russia alliance or is that a mirage? I don't think there is. Um, Russia is providing gas to China. It built a pipeline called the Power of Siberia. It started building, I think, in 2014, right after uh, the Ukraine crisis erupted. Uh, and um, China is treating Russia as a country that is providing natural resources that China needs. and. Uh, even if, if the two countries eventually establish some sort of alliance, which is very unlikely, uh, Russia will be treated as, as a junior partner in this game. So it's not improbable that the West will actually use Russia um, as some sort of proxy against China in the long term. So uh, I don't think there is um, a strategic partnership between Russia and China. They, they talk about that, but in reality, I don't think it exists. Um, they are also rivals, um, and um, in this in this game, uh, if Russia is forced to choose between the West and China, I think it will it will choose the West because um, Russian oligarchs they they have their assets in the West, not in Beijing or uh, Tehran. So um, it's out of question. Um, Russia will formally will try to to be neutral in this game and to. Uh, to do business with both sides, but I think it will have to make concessions to the West, not to China, in case um, relations between the US and uh, China uh, deteriorate. Uh, we will see. But uh, for now, um, some sort of partnership certainly exists, partnership between Russia and uh, China, although it's certainly not an alliance. They're, they're not military allies, um, and I don't think they will ever be. Um, and... Um, as I said, the, the two countries, they are regional powers, but uh, the United States is the only superpower in this world, and they both have to cooperate with, with Washington and to, to make deals, uh, which is nothing new. I mean, that Russia and the United States, they have potential to destroy um, not only each other, but the whole world. So, um, of course, they will, they will make deals. Uh, and... Uh, they will they will also fight proxy wars as they did even during the Soviet era, um, and they will they will do that in the future as well. Um, so as you said, yeah, um, wars are just part of human nature. So it, I think it's impossible to stop them. All right. Uh, any final thought for us? Um, well, yeah, you mentioned that previous interview. Um, normally, I hate listening to myself. I, I don't like to hear my own voice, but. Um, I listened to that interview just a couple of days ago, and uh, yeah, most of my predictions came true. Uh, we talked about Belarus. Uh, so yeah, as I said, Lukashenko will stay in power, and um, he is in power. He, he managed to consolidate his power. Uh, and um, I also said that uh, mass protests would erupt um, the day after the election, and that's exactly what happened. Um, so I'm, I'm saying now that... Um, when it comes to to Belarus, uh, the situation there is um, is not 
clear yet what, what's what's actually going on. Yeah, I think that Russia and uh, the U.S. made some deals regarding Belarus, or they're about to make them. Um, uh, but that territory will certainly stay in the Russia's sphere of influence. I don't think Russia will uh, lose Belarus. It's already lost Ukraine. It lost um, Eastern Europe. And uh, I think it will have to, to preserve Belarus and its sphere of influence. All right. We'll be keeping an eye on that. Um, where can people best find you and your work online? Now they can find me on Twitter. Um, you mentioned some um, publications where where they can read my articles. So um, I write for some, let's say, mainstream media such as uh, CGTN or Australian uh, Law Institute, and also some relatively small publications such as uh, Informed Comment, Global Comment, uh, Levant News, um, and many others. Can't remember. I'm sorry. I apologize if I forgot to mention something. Um, Oh, and also there is a YouTube Jupiter channel called uh, KJ Reports. Uh, I write scripts for, for them, so they can follow that as well if they want to. All right. I'll, I'll include those links uh, in the description, so be sure to follow uh, Nikola. He's pretty good at predicting uh, geopolitical events in the regions we've been uh, discussing. Uh, and so, yeah, thank you again, Nikola, for being on GNE. You're welcome. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else, subscribe to all our platforms, and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.